Global Partners for Development proudly presents What Do You Understand? A deep dive into the many facets of philanthropy and development. We will have conversations about what really works and what really doesn't. Do we know yet how to solve poverty? Are big ideas the answer, or do we need to look for small grassroots solutions? Experts in their field will discuss an aspect of their work that they understand particularly well. We will delve into how their work addresses global inequity with an honest conversation about impact. Let's talk about big bets, innovation, social enterprises, large-scale humanitarian aid and the fixation on ending things, or solving humanity's greatest problems, and the issues that arise while tackling it all. I am your host, Rhea Pullen, and my co-host is the Executive Director of Global Partners for Development, Daniel Casanova. Our guest today is Barry Levy. He is a physician and epidemiologist and an adjunct professor of public health at Tufts University School of Medicine. He has written and spoken extensively about the health impacts of war. He wrote the book From Horror to Hope, Recognizing and Preventing the Health Impacts of War, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Levy is a past president of the American Public Health Association and a recipient of the Cedric Memorial Medal, its highest award. Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you and your listeners today. Yeah, thanks. Good to have you. Yeah, and kind of like, this is what a time for you, having a global pandemic at the same time, like you said, there are wars going on, but one so heavily publicized. Are, I, I, I would assume a lot of people are coming to you for your expertise in handling not only the epidemiological, epidemiological side of it, but also, you know, the impacts that are going on currently in Ukraine. Could you speak a little bit to the current status of the last couple of years? Yeah. Well, let me focus in particular on the on the Ukraine war, which sure. is Russia's war in Ukraine, which began on February 24th. So we're looking at you know, three and a half, four months of war there. And uh, several things to, I think, to point out. One, one is, uh, and these are, you know, obvious, but I, I just wanted to, to focus on them, what I see as, as uh, important aspects of this war. Obviously, there have been widespread attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure. And it's not just hospitals and, and uh, health, health workers, but it's the food distribution system. You know, uh, uh, Russia has been bombing uh, uh, grain storehouses and they've been uh, stealing wheat and, uh, you know, uh, laying ground mines, uh, landmines in the ground that make it impossible for the farmers to, to, to grow. So widespread attacks on civilians and, and civilian infrastructure with, with massive violation of human rights and international humanitarian law. The second thing is that the huge amount of displacement, and this has, of course, been wide publicized, roughly a little more than a third of the whole Ukrainian population has been displaced from their homes and communities. Wow. Roughly half, a little less than half, about six million in other countries like Poland and Hungary and Romania, and about eight million who are internally displaced. And these people are in some ways worse off than the refugees who have made it to safe, relatively safe havens in other countries. So these yeah. are people who are uprooted with their own country. There's a war going on. Their you know, food and water is restricted. Uh, they basically have little or no medical care. Uh, the physicians and the clinics are, of course, appropriately focusing on the people who are wounded and are, whose lives are threatened from, from the, the fighting. And so uh, the second issue is displacement. And then the third number is, the th third point I want to make is that in addition to the People have obviously been injured, and of course, many of them killed by these attacks from 
bombs and bullets and, and these um, cluster munitions and so forth, is the probably much larger number of people who are dying or becoming ill as a result of uh, damage to the infrastructure. So again, that's yes. hospitals, clinics, yeah. um, food distribution, water systems, but also the electrical grid. I mean, think of people who were on dialysis who depend mm -hmm. on you know, the electricity functioning, getting and, and then transportation, getting to- or refrigeration the, for medicines. Yeah, or refrigeration, like I mean, just to keep food safe, you know, refrigeration yeah. uh, and, and communication. I mean, people are cut off from the internet. They're, they're, they, they don't know, many of them are, you know, hiding out in their in basements or maybe in the forest without internet connections and 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 you know other forms of communication. So it's the impact of all these indirect effects is probably much greater than the direct effects, and as as widespread as the direct. And in fact, if you look at wars between, I think it's 1990 through 2017. If you look at two sets of data, I won't go into the details here, but if you look at two sets of data for that almost 30-year period the number of indirect deaths during wars and many, many wars during that period of time, over a thousand wars during that, that period of time. Uh, if you look at those data, the number of indirect deaths may be as high as 20 fold greater than the number of direct deaths. That's probably oh not 20 Oh my goodness. Maybe, even if it's just double, you know, it, yeah. it opens your eyes to the fact that, uh, you know, it, 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 on the one hand, it, it's clearly a war crime when, um, a Russian soldier you know, blindfolds and, and takes and, you know, ties up somebody and shoots them in the head. Clearly, you know, that, that's a, a violation of, of international humanitarian law, which was supposed to protect civilians during war. But when the infrastructure is destroyed and people are dying of starvation, are, are dying of contaminated water because they're drinking the only available water and it may be contaminated, um, and, um, and, you know, they can't get medical care or they run out of medicines and People with hypertension get a heart attack or a stroke because their blood pressure is not controlled. You know, that doesn't show up in any, you know, study. In fact, it may be even hard to identify those people, you know, those deaths and those illnesses after the war is over. So um, th that's that's an important aspect of what's going on. Right. And those humanitarian borders that are, you know, being attacked when those humanitarian borders are specifically for getting in supplies that need to come in that they can't produce on their own there within the country. What is the impact of that if not having the, the ways to get humanitarian aid into the places that need it? Oh, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's causing widespread death, death and illness. Absolutely. Not only that, and you, you refer to the, um, you know, the corridors, not only to get the aid in, but for the people who want to leave, there have not been safe corridors to leave. And so many people, in fact, have been killed or injured while attempting to leave because uh, the Russians have, have fired on them. So, I mean, this is, this is uh, it's hard to find words that describes the enormity of the humanitarian catastrophe that is occurring as a result of, of Russia's war of aggression here. So um, I'd just be curious to hear about, you know, in, in however form you wanna talk about it, how you came to get involved in public health. Um, sure. Besides, I mean, and I assume that's you know in track of being an MD, but I'm just curious your your narrative for the teleology of your life. You know, uh, I think it was Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, once said, uh, "Life can only be un understood backwards, looking backwards, but it must be lived forwards." 
So I, I could look back and this is true for I think many people, you, you look back on your life and you could, you know, define various pe uh, periods or phases, but, you know, the reality is um, you take one step at a time and uh, you take opportunities as they come up. And uh, some people have uh, compared life to uh, improv, you know, that uh, <laughs> unscripted theater, that, that is, you know, one thing leads to the next. And before you know it, you're <laughs> you know, in my seventies <laughs> and looking back and, uh, you know, I, I can I can see patterns that I may may not have seen, you know, living forward. So, so for me, I always wanted to be a doctor, and uh -huh. um, but I was also interested in preventive medicine and the broader sociological societal um, uh, impact of medicine and health and public health. Uh, early on in my career, I had several experiences uh, in public health that really. Uh, pointed me more in that direction for a major part of my career. And, and by the way, I've also spent a considerable part of my career working in occupational and environmental medicine on the, the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of work-related diseases and environmentally related diseases. But uh, so, I mean, preventive medicine and public health go hand in hand. And early in my career, there were three things that happened that uh, pushed me more in the direction of public health. Uh, one is I had two summer experiences, both of them, by the way, in California, one in a community uh, a setting and one in an epidemiology training program, which were wonderful experiences and it kind of opened my eyes to not only the problems of public health, but what you could do from an epidemiological point of view to characterize those problems and to see opportunities for prevention. Second thing that's happened is I took off a year between my third and fourth years of medical school uh, to study public health. And so I left uh, my medical school, Cornell Medical School in New York City, went up to the Harvard School of Public Health for a year and got a master's degree in public health. And I learned as much from the courses as I did from my classmates, many of whom were well advanced in, in their careers. I mean, one of them was deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control. Oh, wow. Many okay. experiences, not only in the United States, but many other countries. And so it was really a wonderful experience and really opened my eyes to uh, public health. And then the third thing is I spent three years with the Epidemic Intelligence Service, the so-called EIS of the Centers for Disease Control. Those are so-called the shoe leather epidemiologists who go out and you know, investigate COVID or investigate yeah. some uh, waterborne disease or a variety of other things, not limited to infectious diseases. And in fact, some of the most interesting experiences I had had to do with um, uh, exposure to asbestos in city water in Duluth, Minnesota, oh, and okay. a lead smelter in St. Paul that uh, was exposing not only the workers, but indirectly their children because they were bringing lead home on their, on their work clothes. So it was those experiences that pointed me in the direction of public health, but always um, uh, spending a fair amount of my time in, uh, in clinical medicine. And when I had my first uh, uh, position after my training, I was at the University of Massachusetts Medical School where I was asked to set up a, a program in occupational environmental medicine. As I said a moment ago, that involves not only diagnosis and treatment of work-related diseases, but also prevention. And so an important part of what we did was outreach to uh, companies, labor unions in central Massachusetts to see what we could do, uh, not only to help address existing problems and to study them epidemiologically, but also to help them to prevent you know, further cases of, of uh, work-related diseases and injuries. So um, with regard to war though, uh, and again, you know, uh, one's, one's career evolves in, in, in interesting ways. So I mean, yeah. I've always had an interest and spent a lot of my work in occupational and environmental medicine to this day. But um, in 1980, I had the opportunity to work in a Cambodian refugee camp. 
and uh, and I did for two yeah. months in Thailand. Where and what? Where were you? Where so in Cambodia? It, it was in near a town called Aranyapatet in Thailand. Okay. These were over a hundred thousand Cambodian refugees who crossed the border a few months before, uh, and were uh, in this camp that they helped to build uh, with with supplies from aid agencies in the UN. Uh, there were over 100,000 of them, and I was part of a team from the International Rescue Committee and Cornell Medical School uh, that went over there, and we went over there in two to four month periods. I was there for two months, and so there are people, there are overlapping uh, groups of uh, mainly physicians and medical students, but also nurses and nursing students and some others who participated uh, running what in effect was the emergency ward in the camp. But we also did a number of outreach activities uh, to track disease within the camp and also to train workers, many of whom were doctors and nurses in, in, back in Cambodia, but train them in public health. So they, they actually made up the uh, public health department within the camp. So it was, it was an eye-open experience for me who had never been in a situation related to genocide or war. And, and, and this really was both in a sense. The people in the camp were survivors of the Cambodian genocide where probably one and a half million of seven million people in Cambodia between 1975 and 1979 uh, either died or were killed by the Pol Pot regime. And the people in the camp were the survivors, many of whom had lost many family members, they had lost their communities. Uh, many of them were malnourished or had uh, chronic diseases that were untreated for several years. Um, and so it was, it was an eye-opening experience, not only to um, learn from a medical or, or public health point of view, but to also see the, um, the impact of uh, genocide and war on these people, and also their tremendous resilience, having gone through that, their um, motivation to go on. I mean, a lot of people would have given up, you know, at that point. And uh, so it was a really an eye-open experience, and one that began my interest in the impact of, of war and genocide. Yeah, in absolutely. terms from a public health perspective, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in medical and nursing schools, but even more um, notably in schools of public health, there is yeah. relatively little courses or even elective courses on um, war and terrorism. And, uh, and particularly since war is such a major public health problem on a global basis, you know? Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's taken a lot of people in this country to recognize that there's still war going on because of the war in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's unavoidable now, but if you go back a year, there there were, and there still are about 40 other wars being fought in the, in the war, in, in the world. There yeah. are places like Yemen and South Sudan and other places that are hard for, you know, even, even myself sometimes to find on a map. And so these are wars that are going on where civilians are attacked, where women are raped, where men are abducted in the middle of night, never, never to return. There were attack on, on uh, hospitals and clinics and health workers. And this is going on. It's still going on, but it's taken the, the war in Ukraine to make it front and center with, uh, right. with 24-7 news coverage that uh, enables everybody to see what's going on. So, Yeah. Well, so the one thing I'd be curious to know is, so in your book, you talk about documenting war crimes as a, a means for mitigating the impacts of you know, public health on populations affected by war. I'm, I'd be curious your thoughts in the comparison, because you talked about Yemen and Sudan, and I, I used to always tell people pre-Ukraine war, I'm like, you know, there are these places that are like hell on earth where people have to go about their day-to-day -day lives. And it, it's right, like it's there, it's Syria, it's Yemen, it's these places that no one cares about. And I think that 
when I watch some of the current trials right now that Ukraine's doing on Russian soldiers, I think, okay, this is getting documented. And because there's so much media in Ukraine, but I'm curious, like, I don't think that's happening in Yemen or in Syria or in Sudan at the same extent. And it might be longer played out like what happened with Rwanda, but I'm just curious if you, your thoughts and in, in, in how that's playing out right now. Yeah, uh, it's an important thing to be done. That is to document the war crimes. Um, uh, and I was just alluding to the fact that the, you know, the direct war crimes, well, first of all, the war itself, that's a war of aggression violates international humanitarian law, but the, uh, the cruel and inhuman punishment, the torture that's occurring, uh, the people have been killed you know, uh, as, as a result of violate these violations, um, that needs to be documented. And, and you know, no one expects that every single act is gonna be documented, but uh, it's important to document as many as possible, both by interviewing people during and after the war, but also by forensic examinations, which means, you know, examining people who may have been tortured to find you know, physical evidence to document that, and sometimes even um, you know digging up the, the remains of people to document the torture or human punishment. Now th that's far from complete, but it's it's a step in the direction of ultimately holding people accountable, um, and and that's been a major issue is that people have not been held accountable. Um, at all levels. I mean, and, and often it's, if, if anyone gets punished, it's, it's the people low down on the, you know, uh, organization chart. It's not, it's not the leaders who, who start the war in the first place. So all that's, all that's vitally important to document it. Um, one of the people who I highlight in the book in a profile is a man named Vincent Iacopino, actually lives in Southern California now. And um, he uh, has worked um, for many years in uh, uh, supporting torture victims uh, in um, both supporting them physically, but also psychologically, and also helping them, you might say, legally to uh, gain, you know, entrance into, say, the United States, being you know, under uh, asylum laws and so forth. And um, in the course of his work over many years, he developed systematic procedures for documenting uh, war crimes, basically forensic examinations. Yeah. And uh, several years ago, uh, working with the UN and many international partners, they developed a, a, a book that systematically uh, identified the kinds of examinations in a standardized way that need to be done to document uh, war crimes, to do forensic investigations. They've now come out with a second edition of that book, building on their earlier work. It's called the Istanbul Protocol, and it's done together with the United Nations. But that's, that's very important work to begin to um, gather the evidence to hold people accountable, because unless that's done, you know, people will continue to, to uh, do these war crimes with impunity. Well, we can hold everyone accountable but the U.S. We just don't want to hold the U.S. government accountable, right? Well, you know. Uh, so <laughs> the actually, U.S. doesn't want to participate, though, in that way. Yeah. Well, yeah. there are problems, indeed. Uh, yeah. You know, um, uh, five days before the war began, this war, in, I think the day was February 19th, I participated in a, um, in a webinar that was sponsored by the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. And I said to myself in preparing that talk, I said, well, when before has a major superpower invaded a lower middle income country? And there are many instances, but the instance that came to mind was the Iraq war in 2003, when the United States, you could say, uh, conducted a war of aggression. Now we had 
you know, we had reasons to think why we should invade Iraq, but nevertheless, there appeared to be emerging parallels between what happened in that war and what might happen in, in uh, Ukraine. And so, you know, yeah. I talked about what could happen. Now, I think there's an important distinction between what happened in that war, as, as bad as that war was, and the untold numbers of, of illnesses, injuries, and many, many deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths, is that um, in that war, I, I think it's fair to say that our military does the best it can, uh, often under difficult circumstances, to try to avoid killing and injuring uh, civilians. Now, there are many times where uh, accidentally or unavoidably, you might say, civilians have been killed and injured. It's not to absolve the United States. But the, the major difference in this war is that uh, the Russian military is directly going at civilians. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, on, on a, on a, you, people use the term industrial scale. I mean, the scale yeah. of this is, is hard to imagine, but they're killing you know, tens of thousands of people directly and heaven knows how many people indirectly in the ways I already mentioned. So I think that's an important distinction between the way our military functions and I, I have high respect for our military and the way that the Russian military is apparently uh, uh, you know, going about this war. That's fascinating. Another thing you spoke to that kind of spoke to me, especially my mama heart, is all of the unseen injuries, some things that go internally, whether it be trauma and the thing that speaks to my mama heart are the children who are either fleeing or still there or have seen so much loss, or even you talked about, you know, the babies in utero, like the, what was happening with what happens with the babies when they're born, just like the physical effects of just the stress I'll put on the mothers. So right. the things that you said about, could you speak a little bit more to the, the unseen physical injuries? We, we can, you know, track a lot of the, the wounded, the tortured, all of that, but the ones who have the long lasting non-physical effects. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So let me, let me comment on one physical effect first, and then talk about the non-physical and, and some of which are mental health and psychosocial. But uh, it's important to understand that malnutrition is not, uh, which no, no doubt is happening, and maybe on, it's going to vary from different parts of this huge country. You know, Ukraine is the size of Texas with the population of California. So it's a huge country oh. and some, you know, 40 plus million people before the war began. And so um, the, the situation is different in different parts of the country, but mm -hmm. in some parts of the country, no doubt, there's wide-scale malnutrition, and it's primarily affecting children, but also you know, pregnant women, lactating women, uh, older people, vulnerable populations, but the effects on children are not only lack of food, but the impact on their physical growth and on their mental development, and they will have, no doubt, some degree of cognitive you know, impairment as their lives go on. So, and the other thing that's that's increasingly been recognized over the last 30 years or so is that uh, uh, nutritional deprivation early in life and in utero may have effects later in life in terms of increasing the risk of uh, cardiovascular disease and other non-communicable chronic diseases. Wow. Uh, and there's increasing evidence for that. So there are many, as you say, many invisible effects. Uh, and then the mental health effects are profound. I mean. Um, you know, we, we talk about appropriately, I mean, these, these horrendous school shootings, the school shootings that have gone on and, and, and mass killings in the United States and, and children who have been killed and injured and then witnessed that. And even in the children who have not been in the same classroom and maybe not even the same school, but the effects on their, their mental health uh, now and in the future, now consider the war that's going on in Ukraine. And by the way, the wars that are going on in 40 other countries and, and 
the impact that that's having on children's lives, not only affecting them, but the, you know, the effects that that will have in turn on their, on their own children down mm -hmm. the line. So, I mean, the, the effects are profound on uh, mental health, on, on cognitive development, on psychosocial well-being. And these are hard things to repair. I know we spoke a little bit before the session about how you know, development takes years and years and years to, um, you know, and a lot of hard work and coordination to move forward and make progress and, you know, one step at a time. And literally in minutes, all that can be shattered and destroyed in a war. And, yeah. and so, um, so yes, indeed, the impact on, on children is, is profound. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, going on that, I mean, I know we were going to, um, I know that you did work in Nairobi for a little bit. Yeah. And before this, we had, you had, we had touched maybe on thinking about like what role development in terms of, uh, you know, um, public health measures or development in terms of uh, international aid, what kind of impact, what correlation that has with public health and war. And um, yeah. I, I'd be curious here, I, I met, at first I'd be like, how did you end up in Nairobi? Was Oh, so, so, so um, I, I had a, a sabbatical coming. I was on the faculty of the University of Massachusetts Medical School for many years. And I had, uh, our children were then very young. And so my wife and I, my wife Nancy and I put it off for a number of years. And then in the fall of 1987, uh, we went over to Nairobi with our children then age 11 and eight, uh, which was an incredible experience. We, we uh, planned to stay for one year. We ended up staying for two. And I worked for the first year mainly on occupational environmental uh, issues, mainly pesticide poisoning. And the uh -huh. second year, I worked largely on AIDS prevention. And I also did some work for the Carter Center, the Carter Presidential Center. Uh -huh. And so that was an uh, incredible experience. But, but going back to your question about um, uh, development and how that relates to war, I think of development in terms of you know, a major set of activities that helps to prevent war and to promote peace. And there, there are at least three ways I was thinking of uh, that in which development uh, reduces the likelihood of war, um, or if violence does break out, it makes it more likely that it will be contained, you know, and limited in some way. One is that uh, development builds understanding among people within a country. It builds understanding, it builds trust, uh, so that disputes um, are often settled without violence. And, and there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a culture of settling disputes nonviolently. So I, I think that's one major way. The second way is that development often addresses many of the underlying factors that in turn might lead to violence or indeed to war or civil war. Uh, and they do that, uh, development does that by strengthening government and by strengthening civil society, by strengthening the, you know, the rich fabric of non-governmental organizations that we take for granted in this country, because it, mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the fabric of life. And increasingly, it's part of the fabric of life in countries like Kenya. Uh, and I think a lot of the improvement in health, for example, public health, you know, longer life expectancy, less infant mortality, a better women's health and so forth in countries like Kenya is because of development and, and strengthening not only government and making it more responsible to the, the public's needs, but also strengthening that rich fabric of non-governmental organizations, faith-based organizations, uh, civic groups, youth organizations, sports organizations, you know, all this brings people together so that, you know, ideally violence is unthinkable among, among people who are working together, <laughs> playing together, you know, literally breaking bread together. Um, the other thing is, you know, as part of that is that this work on development addresses poverty, it addresses socioeconomic inequities, it addresses an animosity among 
ethnic and religious and you know other groups who might be at, a, at each other's throats were it not for development activities. And the third way, uh, and maybe more generally, is that development promotes human rights. It, it promotes the rule of law. It promotes uh, democracy. And even, you know, we're, we shouldn't in the United States be thinking of imposing our way of democracy on other countries. But, you know, whatever you call the form of government, ideally governments should be responsive to the needs of their people and their citizens and, and others living within their countries. And, and so that means uh, respecting human rights, respecting women's rights and children's rights, uh, the, the rights of refugees, uh, the rights of, um, you know, if war were to, to break out, the, the, the rights of prisoners of war and, and, you know, and so forth. So, um, so I, I, th I think uh, development has a lot of positive things uh, that it, it brings about positive benefits that help to prevent war. It's fascinating. I never thought about that correlation. Yeah, I'm going to steal some of your language there. <laughs> oh, no, please. You know, I, I, I don't have a copyright on any of this. You know, and, and no, it's good. Say. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, I think you, you just spoke really eloquently to that. And I, I so my um, part of the, one of the things we do in this podcast that I, I want to do is especially when I have like an academic like you, is I think that it feels for me fair to ask you about something you understand well, because you've spent time thinking about something a lot, that there must be some things you feel more certain about than others. And so not to put you on the spot, but I feel like it's a little fair if someone spent their life academically studying something, they should be able to like put a coherent thought together about <laughs> something they understand well. A lot of times people are like, well, I wanna say that I know that I don't understand something very well. So I'm not trapping you in the in this like absolute thing, but I, I, I'm curious what that brings up for you. Yeah. Well, you know, let me split my answer into two parts. There, there, are, there are some things that, as I said earlier, a lot of my work is in the field of occupational environmental medicine. And I think there are some things that are very clear in terms of established by scientific fact, by epidemiological studies, uh, by prevention approaches that serve to reduce the occurrence of death and illness and injury, you know, as a result of those interventions. I think when we get to talking about the issues we're talking about today, war and development and uh, uh, you know, uh, ways in which uh, human rights um, are violated during war and um, the kinds of things that need to be done to um, uh, prevent war and promote peace. I think then, now we're getting into an area where there, there, that is so complex and there are so many different forces and influences operating that uh, I'm humble in, in saying anything like, this is something I fully understand. You know, I understand the war in Ukraine. I know, I know why the, Rus the Russians invaded, and I know, I know why they're acting like they are. And I, you know, I have to plead ignorance. And you know, yeah. the, the more, the more I think, you know, the more I, the more questions I try to answer, the more questions I realize that there exist. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me just give you an example. Um, uh, one of the things I've done to work on is climate change, okay? And so I've naturally thought about the relationship between climate change and war. So on the one hand, war, particularly if it's conducted the way it's being conducted now with uh, heavy armored vehicles that use fossil fuels that are being you know, used on a large scale, 
war is at least contributing to climate change, not to invent, not to even mention all the other environmental devastation that's taking place. Okay. So on the one hand, war contributes to climate change. On the other hand, climate change can cause war. Okay. That's on the other hand, but it's another thing that's going on, adding to the complexity. Okay. So for example, the civil war in Syria came about in part, in part, not totally, of course, but in part because there was a four-year drought prior to the war that led to a million farmers and their families going from rural areas to the large cities. There was already political and social instability in these large cities, and this added to the political and, and uh, you know, ethnic and so forth uh, instability, yeah. economic instability that was taking place. It didn't alone cause the war, but it was one factor that led to the war, um, and others have reported on this. I'm not the only one who, who said this. Okay. And then the, just yesterday, adding to this complexity of the interrelationship between climate change and war, two things that I think I know something about, but really I know <laughs> very little, okay, <laughs> is the fact that the sanctions, okay, the sanctions mm-hmm. on Russian oil is, is actually accelerating the shift to renewables like solar and wind, because yeah. Western European countries, and for that matter, the United States as well, does not want to be dependent certainly on Russian oil, and I think there's only 4% of Russian oil or natural gas that comes into this country. But, but, um, but you know, so the, the war, if there's any benefit from the war, and it's hard to even put the term war and benefit in the same sentence, but if there's any benefit, it's accelerating the shift. It seems to be potentially accelerating the shift to renewables. And even that I'm not so sure of, okay? <laughs> Maybe and so forth. So, so in answer to your question, I think, and I think it's true with a lot of people in academia and, and, and people who work in direct humanitarian relief and so forth. Just when we begin to think that we, we understand something, we realize that there's so much more to understand. And the other reality, and, and both of you know this as well, given the work of Global Partners for Development, is that we sit here in, the, in, a, in an office in the United States or in, a, in an educational institution, however well learned or experienced we think we are, um, you know, it's the people on the ground uh, who are living those situations yeah. day in and day out who who know much more about it than than um, you know than we do. And and in fact, one of the things that I love about Global Partners for Development. And by the way, this is not scripted, okay? okay. You know, we're going to cover this. No, no. In all seriousness, one of the things that really attracts me to Global Partners for Development is is the fact that it relies so much on local perception of what the needs are and supporting. And not telling people what you need, but asking people, what do you need and how can we support you in the ways that you think you need the support? So I, I think that's an important realization you know, for any of us who think that we know something. Uh, <laughs> and I think you know, one of the real dangers and the issues we're talking about are the people who um, you know, think they, they know something and understand something. And in fact, they, they may understand the piece of it and understand that piece very, very well, but it's, it's only a piece. Yeah. So and I, with all like the bad news and even just the title of your book, like From Horror to Hope, can you leave us with some hope? What is the hope? What is the hope you see after all you've seen and all the dark and horrible things you're saying? Where's so, the hope? So a, a couple of things. So I started writing this book in, in the middle of uh, 2020, in the middle of the lockdown. Okay, yeah. This is my project. Oh, uh, and, and so I was, I was reading about all these horrors that are reflected in the book. And I said, you know, th- there has to be some positive things at both, you know, no one's going to want to read this if it's only about horror. And, and, um, 
you know, and I myself are getting a little bit depressed by reading about, you know, all these terrible things. And then I started reading about things, you know, some very positive things that, you know, uh, were happening in terms of you know, wars that did not break out, uh, disputes that were settled because, you know, of, of understanding and cooperation. By the way, there, there are over 250 rivers in the world that are, that are shared by more than one country, by shared by two or more countries. There could be many wars over those rivers, and yet most of those disputes over who controls the border have been settled without violence. Okay, there have been threats of violence, but most of them have been settled without violence. So that's, that's a success story. Um, there, there have been, there's more and more protection of human rights. There have been success stories in some treaties that have worked. You know, we know about the chemical weapons that have been used in Syria, but in fact, the vast majority of chemical weapons in the world have now been destroyed. In fact, almost all of the U.S. Stock, stockpile of chemical weapons. That's a big success story. Yeah. The landmine story, and I know Russians have led, you know, deployed thousands of landmines in Ukraine, uh, and landmines have been used in, in many other and some other wars recently. Nevertheless, the landmine treaty, which was uh, developed by non-governmental organizations 25 years ago, is a very big success story. So that's a reason for hope. Um, improved and more systematic humanitarian assistance is a reason for hope. And as I outlined in the book, I actually have uh, uh, profiles of 18 individuals in the book who are inspiring people who are doing things to um, prevent war and reduce the impact of war. I'll just give you one example. Um, there's a obstetrician gynecologist uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country that's been at, at war for much of the last 25, 30 years. Um, uh, he was treating more and more women, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of women who had uh, physical injuries as a result of being raped, often, often gang rapes, and, and often with the intent to cause physical damage in, in many ways. So he surgically repaired many of those women. He started then setting up a program to um, address their psychological needs. He wow. then set up a program to address their socioeconomic needs and help to train them and reintegrate them back into their communities where they were, off, they were often shunned by their own families and communities because, because they had, had been raped. And then he became an advocate for the prevention of gender-based, that is sexual violence against women and in fact, he shared the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018 for his work on advocacy. I get goosebumps talking about yeah. it. Okay? Oh. But, but yeah. and, and now that's, that's just one example. I mentioned Vincent Iacopino a moment ago, who um, um, uh, was involved in um, treating people who had been tortured and then developed a, what became a United Nations protocol for systematically documenting those, uh, those uh, instances of cruel and human, human punishment and torture. Uh, there, there's a um, woman I describe in the book who's an anesthesiologist who for years wanted to work with Doctors Without Borders and, and her working situation never allowed her to do that. And, those, and then she took the initiative to change her employer, worked at a place where she could take four months of the year off every year and have other people cover for her. And she went off to dozens, literally dozens of um, uh, mainly middle and low income countries uh, that were at war over the next 20 years um, and, and provided not only anesthesia support, but other kinds of medical care in places where there were great needs and actually uh, began then uh, to be a leader within that organization, within Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, uh, 
and so there there are many instances of inspiring people something that i just like with all these examples you were giving us which i think is great that we were you know kind of ending on a high note it's just it yeah. reminds me of something mr rogers says that says look for the helpers and to me that just like completely reminded me of that is like when all these bad things happen look for the helpers and that, if anything that's just like a way to help you know, cope with all of the horrible gorks. I honestly believe there's yeah. more good than bad in this world. You know, I have a lot of reason to be hopeful. I mean, I think I got through my four examples. Yeah. yeah. So one thing we always end with is what is a project you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? I'm particularly excited about using my book as a vehicle or as a platform to get the message out on what we've been talking about over the last you know, half hour or so. That is uh, that um, uh, the, the uh, health professionals, but the public at large needs to have a broader understanding of the impact of war on not only on health, but also on human rights in the environment, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, that these impacts can be reduced and, 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 and people have roles to play in helping to reduce those impacts. But even more importantly, I, I would like everyone to be more engaged in measures that can be taken that each of us can do to not only minimize the impacts of war, but to help prevent war itself and to promote peace. Mm -hmm. For some people that may mean uh, helping a refugee family in their community. Uh, for some people it may mean um, having, having somebody talk about their, these issues at their uh, church or synagogue or mosque or other religious organization. Uh, some of this might mean um, having discussions in other forums in the community in, in other organizations and businesses about war and and what it costs us as a you know as a society as a global society um I, earlier i said i have i have enormous respect for our military and they're, they're taking nothing away from that um we spend uh over 700 billion dollars in this country uh, of our government money for military protection which is a, more than 11 times the next more yeah more more than the next 11 countries Put together, combined. Wow. Okay. You know, Russia, China, England, France, Italy, add them all up, we're still greater than the next 11 countries. Okay, so wow. uh, um, we need to have an ongoing discussion about how we set priorities in this country in terms of um, you know, defense, but also you know, some of the most important defense, some of our, our greatest security is the health of our population. And mm -hmm. for that, the population of other you know, countries around the world, there's, there's likely to be less instability in the world. Going back to what we were talking about before, yeah. if there's more development, if there's more aid to um, uh, support countries in what they're trying to do to improve their government, to um, uh, address poverty, to address uh, inequities and, and so forth. So, um, so what I'm passionate about, and I guess you can be part of my voice is over the last half hour, is, is I'm, I'm passionate about these issues uh, because um, something, something I do know about is that I think we can do better in preventing war and promoting peace. That's something, that's something I know, okay? I don't have all the answers about <laughs> how we do that, but I know we can do better. I mean... You know, there, there are so many things that we as a, as a nation do and as, as, as individuals, communities, and we as a global society do that are incredible. And um, I'm confident that we can do better in uh, preventing war and promoting peace, maybe 
at some point to have a world without war. I know that's an idealistic vision. I know that seems impossible when, when they're in the midst of this and they're, you know, there's 13,000 nuclear weapons that we haven't even talked about today that represent an existential threat and so forth. But um, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm passionate about. Thank you, Dr. Levy. That is hopeful. I love that you are optimistic. <laughs> for someone who knows so much that you are optimistic and that you have hope that we can do it. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was well, such an enlightening conversation that I think so many people need to hear. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. At Global Partners for Development, our mission is to advance community-led initiatives that improve education and public health in East Africa. We envision a world in which every East African community has the capacity to implement dynamic, sustainable solutions to the challenges they face. To learn more, visit gpfd.org.